0: Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft.
1: Today we're taking a deep dive exploring Charts of London, a leading company in orchestration, music preparation and conducting services for film and media composers.
0: Hello, hello. Hey How's everyone doing? Morning. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Uh, it's nice to have you both back, Kalik and Levant. Um, as I understand, you were in L.A. for some time. <laughs> well, only a week
2: for me, but uh, it was an intense week. <laughs> I, I enjoyed every second. Yeah, it was
0: Yeah, it was great. And you? You went to San Francisco? I, right?
1: I was in the Bay Area visiting my family for a couple of weeks, and then, yeah, in L.A. for around a week, roughly. Um, exciting for Levant, because he's never been to Los Angeles. I and went to that's college that's there. Oh, was your first yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, I
2: very nearly went there to study, but I... Very then moving. I decided to come here instead, and I, I never went. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how was it? Um, it was quite overwhelming, the stuff, film music-wise, everything that's going on. They have, like, a, a big community, and, like, also it seems like a tight-knit community. Like, there's events everybody goes to, and um, in this one week only, I met tons of people. I was yeah, It was really
0: great. Nice. <laughs> and for our listeners out there, something that you may or may not already know about Luke and Levant is that they are both active um, orchestrators and uh, music prep assistants, Uh, based in London, and they both work in a company called Charts, which is um, the leading company in orchestration, music, prep and conducting services. And where
3: we are right now.
0: And we are incredibly privileged today to be within the Charts studios, uh, recording this podcast and joined by... Uh, Nat, James, and Matt. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning yeah. as well. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> um, yeah, it's lovely to have you. Thanks so much for coming no, on board. Uh, to and to us. maybe to start off this round of questions, could you each describe your roles within the company? And uh, how about should we go in a should we go in a circle? Okay. So we'll start from maybe Luke, and then Nat. Got oh, ahead. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, uh, I'll i get a little bit of tiny background into how I was brought on. I was brought on by Levent originally because we went to college together. Levent and I kind of do similar things. And I do, uh, my official role is I'm a senior copyist here, but I also do orchestration. So I help with orchestrating music preparation. Um, and a lot of the stuff I do centers more around things in Sibelius or Finale or Dorico, things in a computer i d I've done a little bit of assembly taping, but I'm not very good at that, so <laughs> I stay I, on the I yeah. Yeah. Watching I, Luke
4: tape two pieces of paper together is <laughs> awesome.
5: Yeah. yeah don't, I don't know. I don't think Luke's got a redemption arc coming. Oh, thank I've you. I've seen you stick a score
1: recently and it's better. It's yeah, good. yeah. It's it's it better, it better but bad. it's it's uh, I'm improving from a quite low place originally. So yeah, I do a lot of stuff in that area. <laughs> yeah. Go saw,
0: home, Luke. <laughs> I saw the taping desk for the first time today in the office. And I was like, mate, I need to have one of those at home. (laughs) Yeah, I I stay away from that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Nat, what about you?
3: Luke's better than he says he is, I think. (laughs) Um, So I'm a sort of general assistant for Matt. Um, I kind of help with a little bit of everything. Um, I do a little bit of uh, sticking when it's needed um kind of help with the project management side of things um and i've also been introduced to doing some mixing in the last six months so i'm kind of learning learning my way with that a little bit so yeah a bit of everything yeah that's pretty really cool yeah and
0: cool. uh matt you're on the right. captain's chair i am Could you tell captain. us more about that role? steering the ship through
4: yeah my, my job is really just to keep everything hanging together i liaise with the clients i'm the one that Kind of um, organizes the schedules with Nat and James's help. We put the projects together, and it's just uh, everyone's so talented that we work with. Um, it's very rarely about quality checking or having to deal with those sort of basic musical problems. It's just process mapping and making sure that we run through efficiently and effectively an interface with the clients. And especially when we go out to the studios and we're there as librarians, and I tend to be the one that's facing off because I've got nearly 30 years' experience in this. So it's mm. you know, it's been quite a few things that have been thrown me over the years, and uh, that you do need that from time to time. As we won't they won't tell that story, of course. <laughs> there is, there's a few stories we can't tell, obviously, but it's where experience kind of kicks in. So I'm just kind of. Like the captain of the ship.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you're composing conductor too.
4: I am I indeed. Yeah.
0: Um which we will be chatting more about in the next mm-hmm. episode. So Excellent. listeners out there stay tuned. Cause exciting <laughs> stuff coming. Wonderful. Um, James.
5: Hey, uh, yeah. So um yeah, I I kind of came into the picture because um uh, like we said, Matt's also a composer, so I came on board, um, I'm Matt's assistant, um, I came on board last year, and then um, that's around the time that Charts really started. So, you know, yeah, I, similar to Nat, you know, I think it's generally we, we, we kind of get involved in <clears throat> all different areas, but, you know, you know, kind of project management, um, you know, assembly, sticking and, you know, I I've, I've get involved in the copying time to time as well. But yeah, yeah, just general kind of, you know, part of the team and making sure things are running. So
0: yeah, that's great. And come full circle, loving. Yes.
5: Yeah, I mean, Luke
2: already said it, we're doing very similar things. Um, I do orchestration and music prep and the occasional, um, like sticking that we have a dedicated team doing that. Sometimes when we uh yeah, have a time crunch. We all jump in and, and help out. Um yeah, so Yeah. Uh, that that's really everything there's to it.
0: <laughs> that's great. Awesome. <laughs> what? Next question. Oh yeah. <laughs> what do you do, awesome, right? <laughs> I understand you prepared questions.
3: Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Can we ask about like who are your regular composers that you work with? Is it uh, something that you could tell us?
4: Yeah I mean I, I go back a long way with this because the reason I started Chance last year was because um, I've been dabbling in music prep and orchestration for years as myself so although my primary business is, is composing I've always enjoyed working with paper and I've always enjoyed the art of music engraving I think it looks beautiful you know fine music can often look well fine as well as sound fine so there was I felt there was always a need for a young dynamic team in London uh, there's a lot of our competitors who are also friends we all work together it is a very small community, Uh, but we needed a bit more energy in it, so we just started, it's only been going since April last year, before that I used to work with a composer called Barrington Phelong, so we did all the scores of Inspector Morse, um, uh, Lewis and everything that Barry did for years, Stephen Baysted, who's a, a chap, who's a professor down in Chichester, he does a lot of game work so we work with nice. him quite a lot. Steve McLaughlin, who's a very famous um, music producer, we work a lot with him as well. Uh, and this year we've started to expand, we now have partnered with a company in Los Angeles called Fineline, uh, who do an awful lot out of LA, and um, we're working with them on a very close basis, so we tend to pick up a lot of their work from the US as well. So it, it, for a company that we started in April, it's grown so, so quickly. So we've only been going just over 12 months. Uh, so regular client list, we haven't quite got established yet. <laughs> we're hoping
0: everyone we've worked with will become regular. Yeah, um, but what were some of the projects that you've recently done as a company? Mm-hmm. If you're allowed to share any of that?
4: Yeah, of course. Uh, the big one was Black Panther 2 for Marvel, uh, working with Fineline. Uh, that was recorded here with Ludwig Gorenson. Uh, We spent, seemed to be weeks and weeks and weeks at Abbey Road and Air on that one. (laughs) Huge amount of music, huge orchestras. It was weeks and weeks. It was Mm -hmm. weeks and weeks. (laughs) (laughs) It was very uh, last minute, but very well controlled and organised. And it was our, our first big job with Fine Lane. And it was... Quite a major one. Yeah. Uh, we did one ourselves called Emancipation with Will Smith for Apple Television. That was a, a big 10-day recording in Chichester with everything from choirs to African percussion and all sorts of mm-hmm. orchestras and brass and what have you. Uh, we did Silo for Apple TV, which is uh, a new series that's just out, starring Tim Robbins. Uh, that was with uh, Atlee Orverson. Uh, and we work, is um, also partnered, sorry, Chance is also partnered with the London Metropolitan Orchestra, mm-hmm. who are our sister company and uh, anything that they do, we tend to get involved with, and they go back to the 1980s. They did some massive films. Michael Kamen was their main Mm -hmm. client, so they've got a heck of a history, and I go back a long way with them. So we've got a nice little (laughs) network. Uh, What else have we done? We've done loads. We've worked with um, Frozen Planet 2. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Prehistoric Planet 2 as well. Prehistoric Planet 2 as well, Yeah. 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 Uh, We did Fallout Boy, which for anyone listening in the US is a very—I have no idea who they were.
5: (laughs) (laughs) So it was so funny when we found that. When when um, the call came through um, about that project, um, it was me and you in the studio. You got a call from Andy from LMO. And um, it was, you know, oh, James, um, could you just um, Google this for me? What is it? Um, Fallout Boy. Could you, could, you, could you search that for See what that is? Was, Hang on, I don't need to search
4: that. <laughs> I
1: had no
5: idea. But no, they were a big band, so we did uh, some
4: stuff for there. Yeah. Uh, Probably if,
1: like, a lot of the stuff we've done, one of the most, like, it's funny because a lot of people didn't recognise them, one of the most recognisable things we've, we've done in a way.
4: Uh, well, yeah, i yeah. glad yeah. yeah. you say that because i <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what else have we done? Obviously, all my own work for for Grace yeah. for ITV. We've done. Um, also, Chance has been doing some audio design for audio dramas for um, Amazon.
0: Oh, cool! So we did yeah.
4: Hellcats too. Here we did all the Foley. Nat was in charge of running. Well, that was five and a half hours of audio story. And has <laughs> got the of music work. together, recorded Yeah. <laughs> Dialogue, the whole thing. So, it, yeah, it's yeah. been quite a quite broad, and that's the first year. <laughs> I think I've missed loads off, but I think that's about it. Oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. There's yeah, other
1: stuff in there, but, yeah, that's that's a good summer. Yeah.
0: yeah. It sounds like For guys, a year of work. Yeah, f- incredibly productive um, over the past year. And just speaking of um, stuff that you all do as a, as a crew in recording sessions like in Air and Abbey Road, what will your roles be there? That you're not in the office doing any of that, you know, sibelius well, or <laughs> that well, kind of stuff. Well,
3: my, my role, I guess, is putting music out on the stands, sometimes handing back the scores, which can be really scary in yeah. front of an orchestra. <laughs> um, yeah, just generally helping things run, helping musicians if they need anything. Um, and then James is in the control room. Yeah, but
4: it's runs sports, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We we have we have um, different setups for different styles of projects. If we're working with big international clients, then it's a very more. Corporate structure that we would mm. adopt, so I would take a eleven Luke had been with me before to Black Panther, you have as well, mm-hmm. and and so we have a very different role as, compared to as, as if it was one of my jobs, which is much freer. Everyone's kind of j- jumping, and we have a good time. But when you are working with something the size of Marvel or Apple, it becomes what we do is has to be sort of seamless. You know, we're not knocking on the composer's door every five minutes, right. or not going to the studio. Yeah. We know our boundaries and we know where the professional lines are set because yeah. it is one of those jobs that you are working with multi million movies and you don't want to be treating them the same way as you're doing your own projects which can be very friendly if it goes that way brilliant but not all composers are that friendly and not all composers are that welcoming to music preparation if it's going well no one says anything if it's going wrong everybody's shouting at you <laughs> so the, the, the way the team interacts with each other and the way we structure it is very dependent on the familiarity that we have with each composer some are some are absolutely wonderful some we just have to head down and just take the beating
1: i <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think it's it's funny matt gave that uh thing about when you're doing your job nobody noticed there's this i'm going to give a very specific baseball example which might reach nobody but i think it's apt is <laughs> in baseball there's a thing called a closer which is the last the last pitcher who ends the game and they want to strike everybody out and mm. you know make sure no more runs score if they're doing a great job people forget what they did if they're doing if people notice them it's not good generally mm. for us mm. i mean it's always nice when people give us compliments or say something nice and and oftentimes people do say something nice but in the session you know we're, we're there to get the technical get the scores across we want things to to run smoothly we don't want if nobody knocks on our door, it's usually it's a good thing.
4: <laughs> True, uh, we have those moments where changes have to be dealt with. Yes. That's that's where you really come into your own. Like anything, if everything's going well, it's much like a director on a on a set. If everything's going incredibly well, anybody can sit there and do it. Just when it's going wrong, it takes a real yeah. genius and crafts person to pull that together. And the same for us that uh, you have. We've had cases where orchestrators have run up saying, "Quickly, we need to do something. We need to write some music," ah, and you're there having to do it on the spot with yeah. the orchestrator waiting parts are flying in from LA you're sort of having to these guys have been in the situation where they've had to be frozen mid-take before they put new parts out because it's it's coming that quickly. And the other
5: side of that is what's terrifying is one wrong step and there's, like, a couple of grand's worth of equipment on the other side. (laughs) Well, and more importantly, a couple of hundred grand's of instrument. Yeah, exactly. You're
4: you're going around this very complicated studio with a hundred musicians in well over hundreds of millions of pounds worth of instruments. One false move, boom. Trying to be invisible. Yeah, trying to be invisible, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And, um, so just going on to, um, music notation and stuff like that so the work that you do before going into a studio could you share more about you know stuff like notation conventions how do you think is the best way uh, to notate a score the that you yes the quickest you've,
4: amount of time? you've got to think about the primary user is the musician yeah doesn't care what the orchestrator thinks. Well, that's not true. But there is an element of how you set it out has got to be for the musician first. If you can make it look pretty and wonderful on score, great. But somebody's got to sight-read that. I mean, that's the key fact. There's no rehearsal. You don't get to see the music beforehand. You have to sight-read it. And Mm -hmm. the players we work with here in London are some of the best sight-readers in the world. What they can read is quite phenomenal so that's our key focus simplicity clarity yeah. not having overly complicated putting page turns in the right place simple mm. things to make their job easy you might not always have a guarantee to break in somewhere so you've got to work out we had one job where um we weren't preparing the actual physical paper uh, somebody else was elsewhere in the country but they insisted that everything had to be on two pages no matter what oh. because it was spiral bound and we had some very crazy layouts not the way we would have done it but <laughs> But you have to work with the client on what they want as well. Uh, And it's different with the European orchestras. orchestras We've worked with with the UK, the UK um, regional orchestras as well. But certainly when it comes to uh, format, we have a series of templates that we have for the specific type of job we're working on. So when we're working with our colleagues in the US, it's it's actually different Mm. to when we're working in the UK. Very slightly, we've conformed them so there's enough similarity to make our job you know, fairly easy, um, because the way people like to see it in LA is slightly different to the way people like to see it here. How so? It's bar numbers, for example, where they like to see their bar numbers. They seem to like have theirs floating all over the place. so you know? it's it's, <laughs> it's it's quite quite crazy, but that's what they're used to. Uh, another thing that uh, they like to see: spare manuscript at the end of every queue. Which is actually useful, because if you have revisions, you can just notate them in. So that's something we've adopted from our partners in the US. I think it looks tidier as well, actually, yeah. Yeah, it's the idea that if you go back and look at parts from ET or any of those 1970s, 80s sessions where people were notating by hand, it was manuscript. So you did have those spare bars, and it is actually quite handy. And uh, there's all sorts of other little ways. Violins as well. They are like violins, yeah. composite violins. So Keys, they, uh, yeah, that. key signatures, key signatures, still. Yeah. And uh, there's all subtle differences mm. um, that make the players in each of the, the relevant countries put it down a little bit quicker.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you have a preferred like font as well? <laughs> Academico, yeah. so sad I know
4: that. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be the one. It's, one of, it's it's something that people have been using across many uh, music prep companies. Well, I say many, there's not many of us globally, but most people seem to be settled on on this for the actual, yeah, any sort of text element. And yeah. uh, it's kind of, this is why it, it's been so exciting for us to work with our colleagues in, in Los Angeles because we can standardise something at a global level for us mm. and for them. So whether you get a score in the UK or the US that there's a massive amount of similarity there so the clients are seeing that the quality um, we are we have great feedback from our musicians because we're all experienced musicians um, some of us have been doing this for some time so we know all the little tricks you know, like don't over articulate violins, don't put yeah. masses of pedaling in and if you don't try and second think how to do the enharmonics for a harp, you, mm-hmm. you don't, just allow them a cleaner score that you can possibly give them.
5: It's so good that we have that relationship with the musicians as well, we, we'll have a session and, you know, we'll do the session and then, you know, they'll come into the office and be like, you know, this, this was great. Um, maybe we could try this or, you know, maybe we could have a look at this in the Scotland And we have a very um, great relationship with a lot of musicians because, like you say, Matt, like the, that's the key um, end user for us is the musician. They need to be able to sight read it. So it's 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 really cool that we have that. And then we'll have it on the whiteboard. The next project comes in and it's like, oh, we want to try this. The musicians like this. So it's,
4: you know. It's, it's the stuff that doesn't always get thought about. Um, silly little things like the perennial, should it be spelt correct harmonically or should it be easy to read? Mm-hmm. So yeah. one of the ones that we spoke to a lot of musicians that never mix in a bar. So see the shots Or flats in the bar, doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. If you've got a scale that's very clearly a scale, then notate it accordingly and other than that it makes sense so it doesn't always make sense when you look at the score level but when you talk to the musicians they don't want to be switching up and down we recently reached there's another big one actually between the US and the UK they don't have key signatures yeah Uh, we Mm. do we've started introducing them here because it's less to read on the page (laughs) you know you've got seven flats at the start you know where you are but you're trying to read them there's like millions all over the place (laughs) So we've started reintroducing, and that's also down to the style of composition. People are writing far more modally than they've ever done before. So you do keys don't always make sense. Me, yeah. myself included.
0: Yeah, that that's really interesting because I mean, on a personal level, like my background was in sort of contemporary classical music, and then I went on to do film stuff, and so I'm kind of used to the world of no key signatures. Mm-hmm. And now, like these days whenever I try to read a score with a key signature like you know as a performer as a flautist or whatever it does throw me off sometimes because it's a completely different yeah. system like that I never I've never adopted whether you know as a concert composer contemporary concert composer or as a film composer yeah Yeah, that's
1: probably similar to the LA players because the the stuff they read is so much more non key signature that's actually harder but for the London players that's one of those where you know we look we would maybe look at film scores in LA and see no key signatures but when we start doing things for the London players I think you got the feedback because you already suspected this maybe we did on scores that they'd like to see more key signatures yeah, so that's another good example of players telling us what they want.
4: Yeah, again, it's clarity on the page. You put a key signature, and you you simplify the page, because if, yeah. you, if you have got a very complicated key signature, it. You've got so many flats and sharps all over the place, it is harder to read. So when you slip in the odd accidental, it's hard to see. Yeah. Whereas with key signatures, it's it's obviously very clear yeah. to see where those accidentals lie. And also in terms of playing, they're less likely to mess up because they know they're in a scaling pattern, they know they were in a framework of a key, if they do mess up, it's likely to be in line with the key and not something they've just played a natural one, they should have played a, a flat. So uh, and we've, we've gone around this for years with some of our finest players and we've sort of got it settled now. Our friends in the uh, in the US aren't quite ready to jump to that yet but <laughs> we are trying to share knowledge between both both sites and, and see what we can find as sort of best practice mm-hmm. but I think it will always be slightly different and there's a very traditional body of people here and a lot of the players that we work with, they are of all ages, you know we do have some young people in a mixture but there's a lot of highly experienced people who have spent their entire careers playing you know, classical repertoire and, and that's that's where they sit. You can always tell when you hit something that's got some kind of classic framework, bang, the orchestra just suddenly takes off in another <laughs> direction. They know where they are. They've got a key
0: signature. <laughs> <laughs> right. And just to feed my pure curiosity, were there any occasions where conductors demand it for transposed full scores? Never, 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 never. <laughs> always no. concert. always yeah. concert. Yeah. I've right. never
4: had, I've never had in my entire career, anyone want a transpose score. Yeah. Um, I try to think if I, no, I'm pretty sure. Out of interest. What makes you ask? Yeah.
0: Good. Oh, it's, um, it, it comes from a personal place because um, I'm, I'm currently doing a course at the NFTS and we're gearing up towards, you know, a couple of air studio sessions, which we have over the course of two years. And um, the conductor who's leading our sessions has requested for a transposed score. Interesting. Which, Very interesting. Yeah, of which, uh, as far as my understanding goes, it's incredibly unconventional. And that also means doing an extra part. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I can't understand. So, yeah, it's yeah. It's, a, it's a strange one. But at the same time, if you think about, you know, going back into classical traditions all of those scores are transposed. So there is that fundamental difference.
1: You know what I I think it is, too, though, with with having concert scores is a lot of composers, it's just easier for them to read the concert scores. So if you think about it, like if you're giving scores to multiple different people and you don't know what their um, preference is, it's just safer to give everyone a C as a C in every instrument, because then you call out, oh, you know, a horn has the C everybody has it you know so it's just I I think in in that fast recording environment it's so much clearer to do that
4: well I think you've hit the nail on the head there which is traditionally if you look at the the, the, the sort of classical side of things where things were transposed you would have time to learn the score before you went into rehearsal you would have time be- during rehearsal yeah. there are no rehearsals in sessions, so you, you mm-hmm. can't second-guess and trying to think about how is that an up down on second is it fifth is it ninth whatever uh, you just don't so when you're conducting quite often you don't get as I, I quite a lot of conducting for sessions you don't see the scores until the day mm. so if you've got an added level of complexity of actually trying to read harmonically what's trying to be achieved yeah. and when there's errors in in parts which if we've not prepared them um yeah. we do yeah. get we're we're never if we are if, if as a conductor i'm working with parts uh, that uh, shall we say have a few problems in it's obviously a lot easier to see harmonically where those problems lie than it yeah. is trying to figure out with transpositions as well you'd look straight down you can see that there's a problem so that's i think it's just a, from a practical perspective when you've got no time and sight reading is key in everything that we do now yeah the yeah. amount of
1: conductors who get things not even not like during the session minutes before the session or just purely sight conducting is incredibly common mm-hmm. i mean that's like one of the so yeah I in, in that amount of time it's like i mean matt said this a lot people say this like time really is money in this because if you go over it can be 10,000, you know, 10,000 pounds yeah. right there if you've got a huge or more. orchestra. Yeah. In and I think
4: the session conductors yeah. are another one of those instances where if they're not there, it's still going to be brilliant. They're not necessarily, we're not needed. Yeah. People just don't look at you. They've got the click. They know what's going on. You're there when it goes wrong. when the composer doesn't know what notes he's or she's supposed to be putting down no one can give you a a clear steer from the booth you have to take control and I've always seen that your your job is crisis management there as a session conductor because as you say, as I said, everyone's got the click everyone knows where they are, they've got these massive bar counters all over the place, you can't really miss it (laughs) we're just not needed for the day-to-day stuff, but when something goes horribly wrong or you want to craft something in another way you want to shape a phrase, usually there's not a time you Mm. can say, one take, two take, done move on, you haven't really got the time to craft Sound in the daytime um, session world. If you're thinking about sessions that are over a day, where you've got to cram it in, obviously the large-scale orchestral recording um, projects gives you give you way more scope for that kind of material, but it's still hugely pressured on time.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Right, I think. Yeah, yeah. We got a
4: question. Uh, Well, I have the
3: question for this. So, when things get hectic uh, in in the office and in the studio, so what what is your go to? like you know, mindset or like what would what would you do?
4: <laughs> well, it's funny. Yeah, it's a very good question actually. Um, I spent ten years as a project manager for a bank, and, and I was involved in, in managing uh, the transition when Abbey National became Santander. So we were integrating Spanish and UK banking systems, hundreds of millions of pounds, loads of chaos, teams all over the world, and so I was trained in project management. And that's right. the one transferable skill that I brought across to this world <laughs> because it's just organisation, crisis management. You know how to plan for errors. You know how to plan, and it's just the ability to stay calm when things are going. Everyone's panicking around you. Somebody has to be that voice mm-hmm. of calm at the middle, and that's that's kind of where I sit in in, in that role.
3: That's a huge role. It is. It is. And
4: I tell you what, I used to be terrible at it. I used to get irritable with people. I would, I would. I was never a shouty person, but I was always you know sort of head up. You might have seen me lose it once or twice. I don't think I've ever really lost it here, have I? I'm looking at James Do now. speak officially? Or...
5: <laughs> 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 no, but no, no. And I, I mean, I, I think an- another strength that you bring across from that, Matt, is is, inf- uh, is enforcing the importance of a good workflow. Because if you've got a good structure that everything's working around, if a crisis hits, if we've got a strong structure that keeps us organised and keeps mm. us working, that's at the end of the day, as long as we stick to this, it's going to get done, then that's really important. And we're constantly thinking about that and constantly thinking how we can improve it and after a project evaluating that and going okay where could have we have been more efficient with this save more time and or, or where could have, have something have been done better because when a crisis hits I mean and I think that's the one thing I think I think all of us have experienced that that like there's the pressure that comes with that as well because you know some of these projects there's a lot of money behind it right you don't want to be the guy going yeah that was my fault that this now costs like Luke was saying an extra 10 grand right so it's like um, it's it's having a process there that means at the, at, at the very at the very least we know we know what we're following we know what we're sticking to and what's going to work and you know and, and that's very important to so us and by
4: process I, th- I think just expand on that a little bit more checking everything we can do has mm-hmm. checked checked checked. Yeah. up down horizontal in out you've got to think as a, as a score as a three-dimensional piece of something to be checked because you can you can look all of us have done this i'm sure everybody in this room have looked at it fine on the screen print it out you see an error immediately instantly so check number one you check harmonically you check intervolically you check at transposition levels you check for dynamics there's so many levels of checking that can be done and we've now got a a really stringent process that we pass it around the team so different people are, are checking it we must put in probably four or five levels of checking by the time it hits the stand yeah and that has saved us i mean even things like missing parts you've got an 80 a 90 piece symphony orchestra out there thousands of bits of paper uh, on uh, nearly 100 cues You've got to know where every page is at any moment in time. You lose one, you've got a problem. Yeah. And the
5: aim is for 100%. like The aim is for that session to run and no one puts their hand up. No one goes mm-hmm. this is missing, this mm-hmm. is wrong. And we achieve that and it's only because we have those levels of, of step checking because it's like you get to check three and someone's still catching something. You're like yeah. it's because so many eyes need to be over it. And you think because it's not just individuals but it's the amount of cues people are working on coming from different contexts. You know, someone's been copying certain kinds of cues Queues for a whole day and their minds kind of in that mindset and you get someone fresh from the team and that's why the off because we work internally in an office i think that's something that's different that we do is that we have the team that work together so instead of you know things been external and not been able to keep exact you know complete track of where everything is we have an internal team, which means that people can just kind of hop on things directly, and there's dialogue going on all the time, you know. And I think, and and, and I think that in that way, our checking process is it, very, it's very strong, you know.
4: There are a few occasions where hands have gone up saying missing parts and then we do go and name and shanks we go up to the stand <laughs> during the break and then yeah. find it tucked around the back of the wrong place yeah <laughs> we've had that a few times we never make it public but we just said to the musician oh, you did see it. you may, you know yeah right. so uh, straight for the pad yeah it's I'm not always, a look at this. whenever you see a hand guard, it's not always our fault. everyone blames us mm, yeah, yeah. So it's usually not us yeah <laughs> some of the musicians we work with bless them they're wonderful players but bloody awful organizers papers everywhere scores <laughs> all yeah because soon as you open that pad and you know
5: the the player next it's all in audio open this pad, and it's like <laughs> is everything, everything yeah. everywhere
4: yeah
1: <laughs> oh another thing to say about that one thing i've definitely learned over the years doing this some in los angeles too is one of the earliest things i kind of learned was that it's much better to get things correct and take a little bit longer than to be sloppy so sometimes when you're under a lot of pressure you just want to rush everything out that is not the right way to do it at, at all. If things take longer, or if you need to get more people in, or, or whatever, to get it done, make sure it's perfect so the standard never changes mm. on under time. Mm.
4: Just to give exactly, and just to give some perspective about the resource this takes, which following on from what Luke was saying there, on some of the larger scale projects between us and the US, there could be up to so eighty or more people working copying at any one time, huge team because of the amount of work and the amount of music that has to be generated in a very short space of time at a very high quality. So it is managing a huge beast, especially where internationally I interface with, with Fine Line, they work with us, so there's two two points of contact. And then we may have 40 here, they might have 40 there. It's a huge beast to keep organised. So it is it's sort of a military operation to get that paper. It's surprising. People think, you know, you just people print parts and put them out. No, there's a massive teams, but it's the biggest part of the music team it can be bigger than the orchestra.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what happens to all of this paper, all of the parts at the end of a project? Uh, we have a ceremonial burning. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, they will get recycled. Uh,
4: obviously, there is. Well, yeah, but we often have uh, non-disclosure agreements to sign, especially because cue titles can say. Yes, there's, there's, one, there's one or two mm-hmm. stories. No, I can't tell that one. But there, there are a few stories where there's been arguments with the composer and the, the orchestration team because the name of the character that's dying is on the top of the top of the score, oh, no. and the composer said that has to. That has to happen. That's exactly what's happening. But if that gets in a waste paper bin and somebody finds that, whole game given away. But the
5: funny thing is they'll still have the code name for the the project in the top right corner. So they'll have this code name for the film. So if it ever gets out, well, they won't know what film it is, except this main character dies is the name of or or lives or whatever it is. So it's like, okay, yeah. Doesn't quite work.
4: <laughs> so we, we do try and um, we we do want to be very environmentally friendly. There's a whole nother discussion which is very I won't go into now about the idea of digital delivery rather than paper. But that aside, uh, we do make sure we use high quality paper as well. Very high quality paper. Um, simply because it's easy to read, easy to work with. And again, it's about presenting the best possible formats to musicians, but everything we do is recycled. Um, and It's a shame you spend like a whole week, 80-odd people putting together these thousands and thousands of sheets of paper, then it's straight in the shredder. In the shredder. <laughs> straight in the shredder. <laughs> right. Uh, we so we keep the scores, um, or in some cases, if, if working with Disney, we have to ship it back to their library. Oh, uh, oh, you have to yeah. ship it back to their library. Yeah, so you have to put every bit of paper in mm. a box. They sometimes say, just take two violins, take two violas, um, it depends. But on some, we've done Princess, for example, mm. they wanted the whole thing, so we've had to ship it back to Fox or Paramount or wherever. Oh. In like 10 or 12 huge mm. boxes. And <laughs> it's, it's stressful, isn't it, Not Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> expensive. Yeah, yeah, it's very
4: expensive. Well, it's, it's at their cost, obviously, but it's... Yes. Uh, and I, I, I don't know why they do that. I think it's just to have the assets that are controlled with the film mm. like they would yeah. with anything, like the, the stills and everything else. It's all kept together. Yeah. But obviously, there's a lot of information... Proprietary information contained in these mm-hmm. scores, yes. um, so we have to be very careful about our uh, digital security as well, because we obviously hold very sensitive information, um, scores, and things that people would want access to. And uh, there have been breaches with other companies before, so we've been very, very careful to make sure that our security is very, very tight when it comes to our digital assets. Yeah, yeah, different world, isn't it? Music yeah. prep, you think <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. Once you
0: get into it, it's like whoa. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but just about digital security again, yep. because um, we had a we were privileged to have a, a masterclass with Nick Hooper last yep. year back in the RCM, and uh, naturally with Nick Hooper, the conversation was about Harry Potter, and he was telling us how at that time um, he received a copy of the Order of the Phoenix delivered to his doorstep through like some kind of like DVDs and a suitcase that was locked oh. up. And obviously, in this day and age, we don't do that anymore. So what's...
4: Oh, uh, do we? We do, yeah. Right. So what, when, what is it like? Yeah I, yeah, I won't mention the film, but we, it was a very big one. Yeah. And uh, there was... <laughs> the digital media was contained on a hard drive controlled by one security person. It was their job to, to take that. We plugged it into the machine. They would stay by that machine the whole time yeah. till the session of any tech machine out, take it with them and go. It was oh. total secure. No transfer of digital rights over the internet at all. Right. And they do... When you spend $200 million on something, they, they, they amounts that could be lost <laughs> by that there's some horror stories out there that I've heard of things going missing on people's hard drives and laptops mm. so it's not, you don't get it, if you're working on a big film you're not going to get a Wii transfer or a Dropbox link. <laughs> mm. I say that but uh, mm. so yeah there's still a very big uh, control around the physical security of drives, everything's water marked as well so they know who's leaked it all, where it's where it's wow. failed so it is yeah still very, so that is that person still turning mm. up, armed guard, whole thing
0: <laughs> <laughs> and does he stay oh, yeah. in the studio the yep. whole time? yep Ooh, it's yeah.
3: like a secret mission. <laughs> well, he
4: also controls who comes into the studio because obviously you can walk in the back of a studio and see the pictures. Yeah. Oh. So if you're not authorised, he will get you out. Oh. Yeah, it's very tight. Oh. If, yeah, Abbey Road and Air, when you're working on that scale, because we're used to working there, and a are very friendly, we know everybody, all of the team have been there a number of times on our sort of small scale stuff. But when you go to the larger level, it becomes... Very, very tight security-wise. You've got to be cleared. You've got to have all these clearances. NDAs have to be signed. You, certain people can't be in certain parts of the studio. It's really yeah. quite a different feeling.
1: Stuff does leak. I mean, we've seen mm. examples of scripts leaking, picture leaking of, of things uh, in the past. So you see why the security is so high. I mean, yeah, you know, it happens. So, yeah.
4: Even okay. down to um, musicians taking copy, taking photographs of scores. That's all <laughs> has to be controlled. Well, they, they often do that just because of when they're registering the work, so they want to know the cue names that yeah, they're played for on for yeah. PPL. So it, yeah. it does yeah. make sense that they do, but it's strictly not allowed to, of course. So, uh, yeah, you see everyone getting antsy when everyone's get their phones out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've been there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it even even on the level where it's, you know, it's a pickup session and they're not flying anyone out, they'll still fly out the one person that's got the, the film because mm. that still matters. That process is that important. If, if the composer might not be going nowhere, but, but yeah. that person will still go. Yeah. So
0: Yeah, that that is so interesting. Um, right, so I love to, and this is a, <laughs> this is a huge subject um, about orchestration because that's something that you guys, engage in as well. Could you just give our listeners an idea of what the job of an orchestrator entails?
4: (laughs) (laughs) kinda works. Thank you for that. Thank you you for that. That that. Well,
0: okay. Uh, I think
4: it's a word that's often misused and misunderstood a lot. Um the way we deal with orchestration is is taking whatever our input is, whatever kind of material we've received, and preparing it for the orchestra to be played in a tuneful and meaningful way. With all the relevant articulations and everything else that goes with it so we're kind of a translator from the composer's ideas to what it has to be in the real world now that's a massive bandwidth in the middle you can have like a piano sketch on a bit of paper one end or you can have a full Sibelius or Finale score it's and it's everything in between um I think there are there's there's a sort of slight movement and I have seen this a lot with people calling themselves orchestrators when they're really just doing music prep as well so way i sort of think here where we do it here we have some wonderful people certainly luke and lever are some of our finest in our team who are brilliant at this but it goes one step further where you consider voicings textures balances you know you, it, there has been a move in my opinion there's another whole episode here about mm-hmm. the quality of what's being put out at the moment, actually I don't think it's as good as it's ever been <laughs> at all, but um, you know there's real musical understanding in, in how to put an orchestra together you know, don't overload the third there's so much information that you can put into a score to make it better, to make it sound more balanced or, you, or make it more lower end brass for example or also suggesting to the composer that they may want to augment the lower brass in a particular way to get a particular type of sound so also feeding back to say have you thought let's use contrabass trombone here for example let's have two tubers whatever whatever it is so you're a part of the creative process you're not just somebody who's verbatim copying what the orchestrator does uh, sorry the composer does and so you're adding you're adding value. You're not there just moving dots around. You're adding real knowledge and value. Suggestions for additional um, filigree on lines. Um, we did something with, with Luke and Lev recently, and it, I gave them a sort of very rudimentary structure for, and just said go to town on it. And the brilliance that comes out of that. So really, to really trust your orchestrator, just let them get on <laughs> with their job and let them have the creative interest. And that's where you really get the great combination between composer and orchestrator. Um, on the other hand, if it's just a... Somebody who has a, a very clear view of what they want, and that's what they want. Your job's to obviously support the composer, yeah. Um, but you never, it's never clear which way to go. You yeah. kind of, I mean, Luke Levy, you can probably talk more on this. Is about where you felt like, Oh, I really want to go. Oh, no, I can't, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It,
1: it differs uh, greatly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I do some stuff for another company as well, and that stuff is a little bit more literal. But one thing I definitely like to say about orchestrating, and one of the things where. The uh, Matt was talking about the quality of orchestration. One thing I, I view as a mistake that some people make is, and it obviously can depend on what the composer wants, but sometimes what makes a good mock-up, the type of voicings and things like that, and doublings and layering, yeah, does exactly. not make a good orchestration. Some people, when they write their scores, and I respect composers that do this, are very literal about what they want, or a lot of it's time too. And have time to, to say, you know, th- this is really exactly what I want. And then you give them exactly what I want. And it sounds great. That that can work too. But a lot of the time, and, and I'm like, I, I know this especially because I work as an orchestrator. I'm also a composer. And I do some things in mock-ups that I would not literally put those exact notes in voicing, especially if I'm working fast in an orchestra, like layering percussion in a certain way. I've done things for things like, you know, Audio Network or... You know, video game scores where they're layering a million percussion instruments or a million, you know, different brass stacks. You wouldn't actually, it'd be impossible to do that. So a lot of it is considering, okay, is this, this, they, they probably did this to make the mock-up sound better. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it. Or like sometimes people in mock-ups will put. Uh, closer voicings of low notes together than normal because it gives a thickness and also you can adjust th- the thing you have in mock-ups is you can change volume faders however you want the modulation can be the same but sometimes they'll have like something double low in brass but they'll have that note kind of far in the back you can't do that in real orchestra i mean it'd be ridiculous to have somebody piano somebody forte in the same interval so a lot of things um, I, I think a lot of mistakes can come from taking something that's very much supposed to be in a DAW and taking it way too literally.
4: Oh, there is a skill as well um, in actually translating. It may sound one way with samples, but in yeah. the real world, you'd never get that realistic. But people have become used to the samples, you see, and this is this totally. is one of the problems I have with the whole. It's a great tool and it has allowed many people to, to be creative, um, but it doesn't automatically translate to an orchestra. And I have heard directors say, "Well, I prefer the demo." That happens a lot. Mm. So whatever you do, you've got to bear in mind that you've got to sound better than the demo. That's where an orchestrator has to think. Well, I've, you know, okay, I'm not doing what's written, but I need to redo it to make it yeah. sound better. So you're now sort of fighting against samples in order yeah. to make it better and real. And that also depends on the quality of the orchestra you're working with. You know, there's mm. some 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 orchestras globally who aren't used to playing in a particular way or you might not get the quality of players you need across. I know there's some countries where you're fine if you've got six horns, if you want 12, you're going to have a problem with 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It's just <laughs> one, of those, one of those things. And I'm not denigrating at all what goes on abroad. I mean, there are some very fine musicians across the world. It's the combination of, of history of their instruments as well, the quality of the instruments they're playing. The experiences and the training are very different. Um, but just going back to my, my original point, trying to sound better than the demo you've got you know that's where an orchestrator can really add value by suggesting other ways of dealing with particular situations
2: yeah, i think also j- let me just uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> chime in there yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um i i think it's it's important to like um to be attentive to what what the demo sounds like more so than what's in the actual logic or cuba session because yeah. th- that's also what you yeah. were saying. Like, if you. Sure, you can import all of that and tidy it up and make it as, exactly as um, as it was in the, that session. But it, it will not sound like that with the orchestra.
4: So. Um, and how many times, if have, 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 particularly you know, with with your charts, have we heard something in a demo that's not in the MIDI? Yeah, <laughs> that happens a lot. Use your ears. We always say the key is use your ears. Don't don't the MIDI can be whatever, very misleading. In fact, use your ears. Work out your ears. We've spotted um, where there's been meter changes missing from the MIDI, and, but you can very hearly clear, you need to re-meter it, so you need to make intelligent decisions, but yeah, it's often like, oh, there's a piano line in there, uh, I can't see in the MIDI there we go, put it in
0: because <laughs> yeah. the
4: worst thing you don't want is, right, the conductor is now bringing the piano, no piano <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't It was in the MIDI I mean, that's not an excuse it's no, no, <laughs> not, an excuse. not. Yeah. So work
2: on your ear training, people
4: uh, you absolutely <laughs> you
2: on- be,
1: people ask about what you, what you should do if you want to be an orchestrator, Is those music fundamentals are really important the basic stuff of you're training beyond to pull-apart orchestral textures, you know.
4: Well, and that's something that I, I feel very honoured to work with some so wonderful people here, that they, they've studied so many scores, so many film scores of greats, I mean, real great composers, and uh, have understood what elements to take from that and the score reading as a hobby is, is something i used to do a lot you know you, any score oh, yeah. you get your hand on you know old bernard herman or something you would digest and that's there's a everybody in the team is just so interested in that kind of thing but that is really important look at the scores that you want to then achieve you know if you want to learn how to do something read it listen to it there's so many great recordings out there especially even classical music go and listen go and look at the whole Be- uh, series of beethoven symphonies but read it and look at the colors and listen to them mm. it's great training but it's particularly with film as well, when you look at the techniques, when it comes to, we're very lucky, we've got some very fine orchestrators. Pete Anthony's one, uh, we've got Jeff Imagine 2 They're some of They're some of the industry leaders, so we're having the opportunity to see how they do things. Um, and of course, we learn all the time, so as we all grow as orchestrators, you always see a new way of doing oh, it. Yeah. Oh yeah,
1: that's clever. Best part okay. of music prep is, is you get to see the scores. Yes. And, and you get to, you get to oh, really yeah. see the yeah. scores too, because yes. you become yes, involved in them, so you get to absorb, you know. Different things about the scores.
4: And you do get those two different types of jobs, though. Ones you look at, think, "This is just so brilliant, oh, this is yeah. wonderful." And the others, like, "What the hell are we gonna do?"
1: Even the rough jobs, I've always picked some something up from some orchestrator, even the rough ones. True, because yeah. true. It is like, it is kind of just amazing to see, like people's different perspectives on things even if the you know the a lot of it's messy or whatever there'll be some idea in there that you go oh that's
4: well there's, we do have some sort of internal jokes so there was one orchestrator we work with who'd like to put Metza Forte plus yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> left chucks one in every now and then just as a laugh when yeah, yeah. I so whenever I see someone ever contact. One per score. One per score. Yeah, one <laughs> per score. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little, she's a little inner joke. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: what that means, we're not exactly
4: sure, but no, we put it in. No no. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, We think it's might, so, steal that idea. It's somewhere between mezzo-forte and forte, I guess. So yeah. I
0: what, what's your take on mezzo-pianos in that case? Because it's a highly contended dynamic. How do you mean, sorry?
1: I think what he's saying
0: is a lot of people
1: think it's it's not the most useful dynamic in the sense that it's it's kind of a, a wishy-washy dynamic see my biggest thing and i matt might agree with this is i think you just have to be careful constantly crescendoing and diminuendoing between mezzo dynamics for a whole piece because i mean that can mean you don't have a lot of dynamic variety but i don't know i think they're useful i mean it's as useful as if you think about how many dynamics you have you don't have Unless you're doing pluses and minuses and all <laughs> slashes. You know, some people get really pedantic with their. I think dynamics. it's misunderstood
4: because, uh, again, having conducted so much, whenever you've marked mezzo piano, it invariably sounds mezzo forte. Yeah. Or, invariably. And you always, that's just right piano. <laughs> you know, so it's a it's a useful disagreement. The whole thing's a gradient. The, the one that I, I had a, a little story once where um, I'd accidentally put something like seven Ps and there's no word of a lie 26 violins went to conduct not one played not one played a single <laughs> note and i just laughed like, well you said you know that's inaudible inaudible music so, <laughs> so you kind of drop off the, the, the you know the realms yeah. of reasonability there
5: but the, dynamics is, is markings are not always volume either it's more like a feel as well Intensive, so i think that yeah. so we because the orchestra also balances as well between so balances, sections yeah. so you know sorry so so it, it, it's like you know sometimes it's more of a general kind of fear how to play it you know it's not just the yeah. Play quietly, play loudly. Um, so, but it's a measure of intensity, it yeah, is.
4: Yeah. And what you said there was, I'd like to record tutti everybody together, and that point yeah. is married by that because you know where to balance within the orchestra. If you mm-hmm. haven't got the brass, the woodwind, and percussion all around you, you don't know where to sit. So, mezzo forte or mezzo piano can mean anything. Yeah. But when you sit within the framework of other instruments, where you can clearly hear a brass instrument getting raspier or slightly, you know where you are. So, dynamically, you're more controlled. And we've, we've when we've done those sort of sessions. Uh, we've never had problems with the mixes, never had problems with the isolation, but the players know where they sit relatively to the orchestra. And if you're playing stems, and I know it's a control thing for the mix, but uh, player-wise, you just automatically balance where you are within the orchestra.
5: But if you look at a lot of classical scores, it's just piano and forte, right? So yeah. it's
4: like,
0: basically... Yeah, the, the, I can see where like this comes the, from. The yeah. great yeah. goes as you know a, yeah. a, a, along with time, and then you yeah. get to people like Tchaikovsky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask
3: something, so, As an orchestrator of someone else's music, how deep do you strive to understand and recreate the original composer's style, and how much of yourself do you put in the music? Uh,
4: For us, it's very much dependent on the client. It's a conversation we'll have. Um, When somebody comes to us for a quote, that's part of the discussion that we'll have, is how how much do you want us to be creative? Do you want us just to replicate what you're Uh giving us in in a very verbatim fashion? Um, Luckily, many of the composers we work with give us the latitude to be able to really add to it um we never go as far as sort of recomposing or changing any of the melodies it never really goes that far but certainly when it comes to the the textures that the, that are being performed we do have a lot of scope um to kind of ex- expand on their ideas it's, it's and often they, they're actually not that interested they've got a they've got a bigger picture to look at there's this a framework that's looking against picture or game or whatever so the minutiae of the, the 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 sort of um i guess the sheen on the product they just leave leave us to get up get on with it so you know they, they, they kind of got sort of broader view ours is more sort of micro they've got a more macro view of things and so we think we may, may agonise about three bars of flute they're not really going to care about that <laughs> so why ask them just do it anyway yeah. if they notice fine but you say well that's better and that's just the I art mean, you, of what we you do you
3: have a clearer like view on the score itself because like if composers are doing like so many cues or, or like two hours of music they wouldn't be able to actually focus on that small that's it, three bars of flute trying
1: kind of to thing. get it out yeah.
4: yeah we often work with composers assistant who who kind of act as the interface between because the composer's obviously rewriting and recutting a lot of the time whilst this process going on so we don't obviously have access to that person very frequently um but there is a whole team that goes around the composer usually depends how big you are but <laughs> they you do have loads of assistants and people that can answer your questions for you um and that that's that tends to be that we we don't tend to I don't think we've ever actually gone back and asked the question have we? We've always made a judgment call. I don't ever recall going back. Yeah, because hmm. you
1: don't want to overload their no. their plate and stuff like that too. Yeah. They've got enough to deal with other than their orchestrator. You know, asking some question that they want you to figure it out a lot of the time. They're paying in, in a lot of ways. If you think about, I I had someone explain this to me very clearly about hiring people in a film music processes. I'm hiring people to make my life easier, not harder. So they're referring to why a lot of composers with their assistants they go just figure it out. Yes. It, if you have an assistant, look, asking questions is great. But if you have an assistant that's <laughs> constantly asking you questions about everything, I get training them, that's a natural part. But then you're actually creating work. So if you as an orchestrator or prep person are constantly emailing them then you're taking away some of their resources where they're hiring you to make their life easier and to save them time. So that's why, that's some, one thing I learned from Matt is that's why in a lot of ways you you make the judgment call because you're making their life easier. That's what they're paying you to do.
4: Yeah. And I've never had the situation where we've made a call a bad call on that. Yeah. I've yeah. never where the composer said, this isn't right. I mean, occasionally they may change it because of their own personal taste during part of during it, part too, of it but they, never. They can do that. As, as, as Luke very rightly said we we are here not to we're we're adding our musical knowledge as well you know it's another another way of making sure that the composer can write very quickly not concentrate too much on the detail and and have a whole team of people who are going to take care of that the orchestrator level which can be that can be one two three four five six i don't have a huge amount of people involved with orchestration but it all comes back to the same prep team and um, we just just get on with it Yeah,
0: yeah yeah definitely and there's there's of course that that element of trust as well between you know, composer and, and assistants or orchestrators. Um, right, so we're we're nearly hitting the mark uh, with, oh, wow. with time. Uh, it's flown by, hasn't it? Um, and I'd just like to kind of sort of bring this last question back to Luke and Levant, maybe, was a, <laughs> very casually sitting right next to me. Uh, what were some of your best experiences working in charts? i'll close my ears (laughs) (laughs) or worse (laughs) you
1: start i need You, you you want me to start oh the best experience i would say one of my favorite things in charts is i love all the other projects we work on too but i especially i think when you're orchestrating something it's always great when you have a like close relationship with the composer and i think working on math stuff is is my favorite thing because of exactly that like working on the last uh we did an album for the for basically not just the most recent season for endeavor but kind of compiling and making into new pieces it's called the endeavor variation so it's basically making you know a symphonic composition out of the music for endeavor and that was a lot of fun because you really got to go back and forth and be creative and you know work with with high quality music and i think that's what we all hope to do. And also just for me, I'll, I'll, I'll do a big round of like every the, the best thing for me is hearing the orchestra play things, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean that's really what it comes down to. If you orchestrate, it, specifically that endeavor variations thing was especially special, but anytime you get to hear the orchestra play something you prepped or orchestrated, that's the best part for me because that's that's why we do it. That's when the music comes alive um is yeah and, and the other thing too is the players they make it better they're not going to make it worse <laughs> so whatever insecurity you have about your orchestration you may have you know still things that oh i wish i could have done this better but they're going to make you look good
4: and it's all that always way. make you look good so yeah, 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 yeah
1: that that's always my favorite being at the session being with the players i think that's why we all do it yeah
2: yeah i, I agree with that i uh maybe have one one specific session i w- want to mention that i loved especially it was uh the series finale for endeavor actually uh because prior to that i got to go to uh, the set actually as an extra and oh, uh, yeah, got, be yeah. be in the choir yeah. um yeah, we did the work before. so, so yeah. i yeah kind of, kind of had a connection through that and then the music came in and we orchestrated it and then uh the session was we were up in the choir at, at air studios which is so beautiful and um the whole cast was there and just a magical day
4: we d- we did something quite special with that because the the um imperial for, for his requiem um, I did, made an unusual, unusual decision. We pre-recorded the choir because we had to for the playback for the set. Yeah. But of course, the orchestra element, we had the session. So what I did is we got speakers at the very top of air, played the choir through them. So the orchestra heard the whole choral thing came down. And you got the across the mics. It sounded, it sounded it now wonderful. It's out there on Spotify now. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's a wonderful things. recording. It's such a wonderful recording. But we did it in a very unusual way because the players, you can see everyone. We didn't tell the players mm-hmm. and the whole orchestra. We had a it was quite a big one, we had about yeah. 70, I think, at that point. Yeah. And then there's this wonderful choral sound just and everyone just played up beautifully. <laughs> yeah. I, mean,
5: I don't know if you want to go more into it in, the, in Matt's...
0: Yeah, composer. we'll, we'll yeah. go on. But yeah, there's yeah. yeah. some really yeah. cool stories <laughs> <I can laughs> Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I was literally yeah, yeah. just about to say it. Okay. Uh, um, I'll shut up now. We've got... <laughs> <laughs> well, sit tight and stay tuned for the next one because that's when we will take a deeper dive into Matt Slater's music real. and yeah <laughs> yeah that'll be a that'll be a really fun really musical conversation about um and we can chat about all all of the in the most interesting recording techniques that you've adopted <laughs> <laughs> crazy I think <laughs> crazy in, yeah and yeah, yeah, endeavor I think delete it as well some of your film works and, and um nice. arrivals and yeah some of the album stuff as well um thank you all so much for joining us today we have I think by far the largest number of people in a podcast yeah. so far who <laughs> really pushing the boundaries of music, podcasts, well, yeah. pushing the boundaries. Pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. There we go, seven people. Um, <laughs> and uh, Nat, Matt, and James, thank you so much for coming. No problem. Well. Yeah. For sharing this wonderful studio here at Charts with us today. And uh, for our listeners out there, we are on Instagram and TikTok, so follow us at Compose in a Jukebox. Um, we've got loads more really interesting, really fascinating episodes cooking in the edit, which we can't wait to share. And so subscribe to our pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts to be notified on future episodes. We'll see you in the next one.